0: Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay.
1: I'm Derek Alexander Pope, Managing Director of the Ark of Justice Institute, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast brings you the lost stories of the heroic and vital contribution that lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. This week, we finish up our installment on Constance Baker Motley and her handling of the James Meredith case the 1962 lawsuit that resulted in the desegregation of the University of Mississippi. We finally got an applicant in the state of Mississippi
2: who requested our assistance. Going to the University of Mississippi was James Meredith's idea. The uh, civil rights uh, cases uh, demonstrated for the American people that there is a branch of government that will respond Uh, to the deprivation of basic human rights.
1: The case began simply enough. In January 1961, a letter arrived at the offices of the Legal Defense Fund of the NAACP addressed to its director counsel, Thurgood Marshall. It came from a young man who wanted to attend the university in his home state. When Thurgood opened the letter, the young man got right to the point. Dear sir,
0: I am submitting an application for admission to the University of Mississippi. I am seeking entrance for the second semester, which begins the 8th of February, 1961. I am anticipating encountering some type of difficulty with the various agencies here in the state which are against my gaining entrance
1: into the school. Because Mississippi was the worst of all Southern states, Thurgood Marshall said,
0: This man has got to be crazy.
1: He took the letter and threw it on Constance Baker Motley's desk, turned around and walked away and said, That's your case. Once Thurgood left, Mrs. Motley continued to read. I discussed this matter
0: with Mr. Evers, the Mississippi field secretary for the NAACP, and he suggested that I contact you and request legal assistance from your organization in the event it is needed for I am not financially able to fight a legal battle against the state of Mississippi. I hope your decision on this request will be favorable. Below is a brief history of my background, which might help you in reaching a decision. I am a native Mississippian.
2: He was All a of my elementary and secondary education. He left his home state, state uh, when he graduated from, from high, school, high school, went to Florida, and went to high school there. And then finally went into the service where he spent nine years. And when he had been in the service nine years, he decided that he himself would be the black in the state of Mississippi to challenge that state's uh, system of racial segregation.
0: I came back to Mississippi to launch a war against white supremacy for the
1: purpose of destroying white supremacy. Mrs. Motley began her communication with Meredith and she directed him to apply to the university since at that time he had not actually been rejected.
2: We finally got an applicant in the state of Mississippi who requested our assistance. Contrary to what many Southerners believed, particularly Southern officials, we did not solicit James Meredith. Going to the University of Mississippi was James Meredith's idea. He contacted Medgar Evers, who was then the state secretary of the NAACP, and Medgar Evers wrote us in New York and said that he had a young man who came to his office and wanted help in seeking admission to the University of Mississippi.
1: Mrs. Motley filed the case on Tuesday, May 30, 1961, in the United States District Court for the Southern District of Mississippi presiding over the case was the Honorable Judge Sidney Mize. It was not the first time that Mrs. Motley would handle a case in Mississippi, or for that matter, have the occasion to appear before Judge Mize. She began working for the Legal Defense Fund as a clerk for Thurgood Marshall while she was still in her third year at Columbia Law School. After passing the New York State Bar, she began working full-time for the Legal Defense Fund. And it wasn't too long before Thurgood decided she needed to learn to try cases. Her first one was with Charles Hamilton Houston against the University of Maryland School of Nursing. Shortly thereafter, with Thurgood, she appeared before the State Commissioner of Education in Albany, New York and in late 1949, Thurgood assigned her to assist Robert Carter down in Mississippi in a case to equalize teachers' salaries. Black teachers were being paid less than white teachers. The case was in the courtroom of Judge Sidney Mize, and in his courtroom was a stinging reminder of the ways of the Old South. The courthouse had been built as part of the Works Progress Administration. This was a Great Depression era program designed to put people back to work. As part of the project, an artist had been awarded the chance to fashion a mural depicting Mississippi life. He portrayed what he apparently saw as the true face of Mississippi society. Not only the separation of the races, but the inferior social status of blacks. On one side of the mural, white ladies in hoop skirts, frilly blouses, and silk bonnets were escorted by tall, handsome white men in high silk hats and cutaway coats standing next to a lavishly furnished horse-drawn carriage. On the other side, black men in farm work clothes and women with Aunt Jemima appearances wearing aprons and bandanas, standing by stacks of baled cotton. That mural would not be Mrs. Motley's only reminder that she was way down south.
2: Well, in Mississippi generally, uh, and throughout the south for that matter, it was the custom from slavery to address blacks either as boy or women by their first names. Black women were not accorded the dignity of being addressed as Miss or Mrs. And when I first went to Jackson, Mississippi in 1949, the, uh, I think it was the Jackson Daily News was the name of the newspaper. They refused to address me as Mrs. Motley. They referred to me as the Motley Woman. And some of the lawyers who opposed me in the cases which I brought in Mississippi refused to address me as Mrs. Motley. That was something which surprised me a great deal because I wasn't accustomed to that. Having been born and reared in New Haven, Connecticut and living in New York, I knew about it. But when it actually happens, you're really shocked that any person uh, who calls himself educated and professional, like a lawyer, uh, would refuse to address another lawyer. Uh, as miss or missus, but that's what actually happened.
1: So by 1961, Mississippi had become a hotbed of activity for civil rights protesters as the Freedom Riders had made their way to Jackson, Mississippi. So on the afternoon of May 30th, when Constance Baker Motley went to the courthouse to see Judge Miles, with her lawsuit in hand, she wanted to ask him about a date for the hearing
2: when the Freedom Riders arrived in Jackson, I remember going into court in Jackson. I had been there before, before Judge Mize, and uh, Judge Mize just shook his head and said, why would you have to come down?
1: Mrs. Motley knew that civil rights protests were breaking out all over the country, and since the Freedom Riders had invaded the state, there would never again be a right time.
2: Now, his was a, by that time, a classic legal case. There was nothing unusual legally speaking about his case. uh, The University of Mississippi was for whites only. And uh, the Supreme Court in Brown had ruled that the state could not have segregated education. So it wasn't complicated legally.
1: And while there was nothing complicated or unusual about the case, legally speaking, The same could not be said for James Meredith himself.
2: Well, James Meredith was an unusual young man. Uh, He was the kind of person uh, that one seldom sees in a young person. When he was in the service, he had saved every penny I think he earned practically in the service. When he had an opportunity while stationed in Japan, to live in housing provided for American servicemen. It would have cost him some money and he didn't want to spend any money. So he lived with the Japanese in the rice paddies. When I met him, he owned one blue suit. He walked around in his army fatigues, I think they were called. And uh, he never spent his money on, on clothes. He didn't drink, he didn't smoke or anything like that. When he came out of the service, he had a little bundle. And that is what convinced the state that he had been paid by the NAACP to be the plaintiff. And, of course, they were never able to prove that because it wasn't true. What they didn't know was that this man was a very thrifty kind of person, contrary to to most young people.
1: Meredith's austere nature and fastidious tendencies would serve him well as the trial got underway. The first thing that Mrs. Motley did at the hearing that was held on Monday, June 12, 1961, was to inform the judge that she had sent a subpoena to the university requesting that it produce all of its admissions records. Assistant State Attorney General Dugas Shands, who was representing the university, told the judge the registrar had not brought the records. Mrs. Motley suspected that Mr. Shands had told the registrar to ignore the subpoena. Before she could say anything, Meredith began tugging at her sleeve, and he told her that I have saved a copy of every letter I sent to the registrar and a copy of every reply I've received. The judge would adjourn the hearing without even listening to the information about those records. Before they would leave the court that day, Mr. Shands asked the judge if they could get a copy of Meredith's Air Force records. The university wanted to see if they could find any information that could be used to disqualify him
2: and uh they the uh state lawyers sent for his army record meredith consented to it they were looking for something in his background to disqualify him on character grounds and instead of finding anything derogatory they found that one of his superior officers wrote a report on him which said that this man is the thriftiest man in the service Not only in terms of conserving money, but he saves paper. Every scrap of paper that we throw out, he saves it.
1: Shortly before the Christmas holidays, Judge Mize ruled that the university had not denied Meredith's admissions based on race. He relied in part on a provision of the Mississippi Constitution section 207 which said that separate schools shall be maintained for children of the white and colored races. Since there was no state statute requiring segregation at the University of Mississippi, he reasoned that the defendants could not follow a policy of racial segregation. Mrs. Motley appealed the case to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And on January 12th, 1962, they sent the case back to Judge Mize for a full trial. The opinion was written by Judge John Minor Wisdom from Louisiana, who noted in great detail that Judge Mize had effectively prevented Mrs. Motley from proving the case. At one point he wrote, The case was tried below and argued here in the eerie atmosphere of Never Never Land. Even though there was an order for a new trial, which was held January 24th through January 27th, Judge Mize on February 3rd ruled the same way he did earlier. He said there was overwhelming evidence that the university had not denied merit admissions because of his race. And just as she had before, Mrs. Motley filed an appeal. Four months later on June 25th, the Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit ruled in Meredith's favor. But the case then took a bizarre turn of events.
2: There are many bizarre things which occurred. Once the um, Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit ruled that uh, James Meredith was entitled to admission, One of the judges of that court, Ben Cameron, on his own issued an order barring James Meredith's admission. Now he did not sit on the three judge panel of that court that actually heard and decided that case. And that was most unusual. And so we had to go to the United States Supreme Court to get that order set aside before Meredith was finally admitted. And that had never happened before in the history of the country. And everybody thought, my goodness, what what, what about that judge? But uh, it did add to the length of time in the courts before he was finally admitted.
1: When it came time for Meredith to register for classes, things began to heat up in an altogether different way.
2: I'm not for integration, I'm for segregation, and I will be until I die. We were going to have the same kind of trouble we had with the authoring Lucy case in Alabama. And of course, sure enough, we did.
1: In September of 1962, Attorney General Bobby Kennedy had worked out an agreement with Governor Ross Barnett to allow Meredith to register on campus under the cover of darkness. Meredith was going to be accompanied by Assistant Attorney General John Doerr and a couple of U.S. Marshals. The governor had agreed to have the state guard on campus to maintain order. But when Meredith, Doerr and the Marshals arrived on campus, they were met by a mob and the state guard was nowhere in sight. At least two people were killed including a French photographer, one of many foreign correspondents covering the case. And President Kennedy was livid.
2: Man has just died. Did he die? Yes. Which one? State police? That's uh, state police. Yeah. Well, you see, we gotta get order up there, and that's what we thought we'd Thank have. President, please, why don't you uh can't you give an
1: order for to, to remove mayor? How can I remove him, Governor, when there's a, a riot in the street and he may step out of that building and something happened to him? I can't remove him under those conditions. There, then we can do something about Meridan surrounded with plenty of efficiency. Well we've got to get somebody up there now to get order and stop the firing and the shooting. Then we, you and I will talk on the phone about Meredith. Sixteen thousand federal troops came to Mississippi for a third attempt to register James Meredith. On September 30th, 1962, he was successfully registered, but so great was the fear for his life that even after he moved into the university dormitory. The U.S. Marshal slept with him in the same room until he graduated the following June.
2: He uh, suffered, I guess, more than anybody else personally. I don't know that to be a fact, but from my own experience and the people we dealt with, like Charlene Hunt and Hamilton Holmes, Vivian Malone, and others, uh, I was with Meredith, I guess, probably longer than I was with any of the others. Mississippi was the worst state, uh, and the fear of violence was greater there probably than any other place.
1: In her autobiography, Mrs. Motley would say that the massive resistance strategy by Mississippi and the other southern states was a resurrection of the basic political themes that had guided the South during the Civil War.
2: Well, of course, what really happened in the Meredith case, when the state decided to resist. They were playing out the last chapter in the Civil War. I think most Americans have forgotten that there was a war, a civil war in this country over the rights of black Americans and that the South fought the North over this question. And there was lingering bitterness and disagreement for many years. And the South insisted on denying black Americans full citizenship rights. And so here we were in 1961, with the South saying to the North, in effect, for the rest of the country, we're not going to uh, give blacks uh, equal rights. We think that uh, separate but equal is good enough for them. And so the Constitution was really put to a test here. The new Constitution, that is, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which gave black Americans their rights. And Mississippi was really challenging constitutional provisions, those constitutional provisions. Now when a federal court issues a lawful order to enforce the constitutional rights of any American citizen, the responsibility for the enforcement falls upon the president because the court doesn't have the physical means to enforce the decision, but the president does. And he has the armed forces of the United States to put down any uh, resistance, physical resistance, such as we had in Mississippi to the enforcement of a lawful order of a federal court. Because under our system, the federal government is supreme, supreme to any state government. And the South uh, was not agreeing to that proposition uh, when it came to uh, rights for black Americans. And so our Constitution uh, was put to the test and and survived. Our country is stronger now for having had that demonstration of what the Constitution means in practical application.
1: So what did it all really mean? And what is the real lesson that we can carry with us even today?
2: Well, when James Meredith was finally enrolled in uh, the University of Mississippi, I think the American people finally understood that uh, if the Constitution is enforced, then black Americans will Receive their rights if they're not. If the Constitution is not enforced, of course, that will not happen, and uh, it sometimes requires the ultimate force in order to do so. And uh, in that case, of course, we did have to use the ultimate force, but that's unusual. But I think it was an important lesson for the American people to understand how their government how their constitution, I should say, is really uh, put into effect. Sometimes uh, uh, it's necessary for us to have such a demonstration. People forget uh, how the constitution came about, what it stands for. They know little about courts, unfortunately and particularly about the federal courts and the role of the federal courts in our society. Uh, But I think the the, uh, civil rights uh, cases uh, demonstrated for the American people that there is a branch of government that will respond uh, to the deprivation of basic human rights.
1: Constance Baker Motley, a hidden legal figure, That Changed America.
0: In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.